Hello, listeners, and welcome to IFTF's Future Now, our podcast spotlighting the incredible thinkers, writers, researchers, and innovators in our community who are shaping our collective future. I'm IFTF's executive producer, Jean Hagen, and in today's episode, IFTF host and ED, Marina Gorbis, talks with filmmaker, author, and activist Astra Taylor about her newly released book, The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Today, they talk about how our seemingly disparate crises, mental health, rising inequality, climate, and the decline of democracy, are tied to a social order and status quo that runs on insecurity. The conversation examines the current cultural issues and systemic forces that drive this insecurity, and indeed, how our current economic system depends on it. They also talk about why economic rights like education, healthcare, and housing should be guaranteed for all, prioritizing what should be the most important societal aspect, human security. It's a compelling conversation that I hope you enjoy, and be sure to check out Astra's new book. Hi, Astra. Hello. It's been a long time since we talked last, so I'm so glad that we're having this conversation. And I think the reason we haven't been in touch is because you basically said, don't bother me for the next six months because I'm going to be writing this book. So now you're done with that, right? I am. The book actually exists. It was an epic speed writing session. I actually started writing it in January and had finished copies in July. And then between that writing process and an epic battle between the Debt Collective, which is the union for debtors that I helped found, and the Supreme Court, I, I was at my capacity. I was going to say, you were busy. Lots of things were going on. So I have a lot of questions. One thing is, I learned a lot of things about you in the process of reading a copy of the book which you were so generous and sent to me. And I, you were doing speed writing. I was doing speed reading. <laughs> so I was really glad to see the book. Let's start with that. The book is called The Age of Insecurity. Why did you write it? What's the main idea in the book? Yeah, the, the book is called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. This is one of my first, in fact, it's the second interview I've done about it. So I haven't quite got my book summary game on my elevator pitch. So we might have to figure that out in this interview, which would be really useful to me. The, the book was written because of an invitation. I was invited to give this year's Massey Lectures, which if you're a Canadian, is a kind of well-known annual event where a public intellectual is invited to actually write a book, a short book of five main chapters, and then give lectures, give five lectures in five Canadian cities. I grew up reading those books. For example, Doris Lessing wrote one called Prisons We Choose to Live Inside, which I really loved. There were a lot of great ones. Margaret Atwood, sorry, Margaret Atwood wrote one called Payback, I think around 2008, right after the financial crisis, about narrative and debt. And not so much about sort of the politics of debt as I, I approached in my organizing, but a book on debt that was really interesting. So... So it fits that format in the sense that it's a it's a pretty small book, it's seventy thousand words, and it's in these five chapters. They can be easily adapted for a lecture because they're broadcast on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation network. So I knew that they would be heard by a lot of people, which is interesting because I was writing, in that sense, I was writing something that could be spoken, that could be listened to, that maybe wasn't as data heavy or statistic heavy as I would otherwise write. But the timing was very <laughs> tight. 
And so that kind of inspired me to to write what, you know, in some in, in parts of it, what I already know, and to use myself and my own story in parts of it. I mean, it's not a memoir, but personal anecdotes and stories to ground it, to convey to the reader. So what? Why why is it that I, Astra, am interested in this issue of insecurity? What are the stakes for me personally? And hopefully to provide a few funny moments because my family is pretty mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to ask you lots of things about that and you growing up. One thing that I realized it was written for the Canadian audience and it was part of that lecture series. And I kept like thinking, okay, she's writing about Canada and insecurity. And in some ways, we look at Canada in the US and going, oh, they've got it figured out. They have a much better social safety net. They have all these things. And so I kept like thinking, okay, it's bad in Canada. Like it's 10 times worse in the US. Yeah, right. And because I knew I would have this sort of captive Canadian audience, it was important to me that I really speak to the Canadian situation. So this book, more than any other book I've written, speaks about the United States because that's where I live. That's where a lot of my organizing is is based. That's the political system I revert to as a kind of default. I realized writing this book how much of a sort of de facto American imperialist I am. I just think in terms of American politics. So I really had to push myself to think about the Canadian situation. And hopefully after people get over the strangeness of there being Canadian examples throughout, I want people to have exactly that realization you had, which is, oh, wow, we looked at Canada as a model and it's not nearly good enough. And also to chip away at what can be a kind of Canadian smugness, right? Which is, well, at least we're not as bad as our neighbors to the South. And the fact is, in a lot of ways, they are as bad. And some instances, which I discussed in the book in terms of the cost of living, the overheated housing market, in terms of household debt, largely driven by mortgage debt, Canada's bad. (laughs) Canada's in in a bad state. The book, very broadly, to just give a a general overview, is attempting to to make the case that we should think about insecurity more as a political phenomenon. We've been talking about inequality as a society for the last decade, you know, in part thanks to just economic conditions going off the rails, but also because of Occupy Wall Street, which put inequality on the agenda. And then we had Bernie Sanders campaigns, which we've had Thomas Piketty. We've had a lot of really popular books, academics sounding the alarm. Equality has been at the forefront of our political conversation. But what inequality does is it tells you about a relationship, right, between two extremes at a certain moment in time. So right now, 10 billionaire men have more wealth than just billions and billions and billions of people on this planet, right? We know that affluent households are are raking in a disproportionate share of the new wealth that's being generated. So we know about this dichotomy, and that's what inequality is. But insecurity is a way of getting at how inequality feels. (laughs) And insecurity is an interesting concept to me because it, it spans the emotional and the economic, right? So you can talk about material insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity, ecological insecurity, all these types of material insecurity, but we also use it in our day-to-day lives to just talk about how we feel, right? I'm feeling insecure because I'm worried that something bad is going to happen in the future. So insecurity is a sort of forward-looking thing instead of just being that snapshot in time like inequality. So the, the book, in a way, is a kind of case for saying, could we understand our current economic, social, political predicaments better if we added insecurity into our conceptual toolbox and thought about that too? And, and thought about the way insecurity is actually really central to the operations of a capitalist economy. Because if we're not insecure, we're not striving, we're not struggling, 
we're not working desperately, desperately trying to keep our job that we might lose. To insecurity, you know, I make the case that it's really essential to the functioning of the current economic order, even in a place like Canada that has more of a welfare state. Right. And it's it's almost seems like production of insecurity mm-hmm. is a key component of a kind of capitalist system because we are constantly feeling like if you think about products that are being produced, it's like, oh, do you have this blemish or do you have this? It needs to be cured. It needs to be. So it, it's all about sort of production of these insecurities and then selling basically products that help you <laughs> remedy those insecurities, right? That can sound trivial, right? Like, oh, capitalism is always going to try to sell you tooth whitening, toothpaste or something. But I I think that they're not just funny examples, right? So I make some jokes in the opening chapter about trivial examples like that. You're supposed to be insecure about your cheek fat now, and you're supposed to be insecure about whether you part your hair in the middle or on the side. But the fact is that that manufactured, what I call manufactured insecurity, is actually essential to the functioning of capitalism. And you see it you see it in our our 401ks, right? So if you're if you're lucky enough to not be in debt, <laughs> so you don't need the debt collective, my organization anymore, you've got some savings, you have a 401k, well, then you just have to anxiously hope it doesn't crash, right? And that the stock market doesn't work without that systemic risk, right? Without that vulnerability that keeps you anxiously watching your returns. And, and, and so I think that, I think it's very, it's constitutive to the economy, right? Like you don't need to, be a diligent employee <laughs> if you have, if I mean, you maybe you need to still be a diligent worker, but you don't need to be as anxious an employee if you're if you're at a lower risk of getting fired, right? So if you have more job security, more employment security. So I just think it's something that actually, once you start seeing it, it's everywhere and it's very much a constitutive feature of the economy. In a previous essay, I'd called capitalism an insecurity machine, right? Like security is not just a, a byproduct or an unfortunate extra thing it makes. It's really essential to the to operation of the whole thing. Do you feel like this kind of insecurity, is it, obviously it's particularly felt at the lower end of the economic scale, right? People who don't have incomes, but it seems like this kind of insecurity permeates all levels of society. So even if you're a billionaire or a millionaire, there's somebody who's making more, somebody who is doing more, somebody who gets get gets more power. There's always like this sense of constant insecurity. These yeah. kind of divisions then in themselves produce this sense of insecurity. I think that's exactly right. In, in the first chapter, I, I talk about a phenomenon that economists call fractal inequality. So we're always looking at what's above us. So you can make six figures, but you can then compare yourself to the person who makes half a million, who compares yourself to the millionaire, to the 10 millionaire, right? To the billionaires. And that those guys are obviously the billionaires of the world are all competing with each other. And there's a lot of socioeconomic research that shows that people basically in the top two to 1% love to call themselves middle class. <laughs> and part of that's like, okay, well, you're just maybe using a euphemism and you don't want to be like, hey, I'm rich. But I, there's actually evidence that it's because they're looking up. And so I think there's something wrong with when, the, when a society has no bottom, which the U.S. has. I mean, you only have to walk around your city to see how far people can fall in the desperation and the suffering that's possible in this world or in the specifically in the society. And that's a product of political choices, right? I mean, homelessness did not exist as a phenomenon the way it does today a few decades ago. I think when you have no bottom, right, like 
that's related to there being no top. <laughs> People both feel like the atmosphere is the limit, but also so is this this pit, right? That there's no safety net to catch them. And so I do think part of what appeals to me about insecurity or part of what I'm trying to do with this book is say, it's not enough to just focus on the, the that inequality on the, the poorest. And I'm saying this as someone who works with debtors, who's building debtor power. I spend my day is building power with people who have negative wealth, right? Less than zero. But the fact is, even if you get out of that debt trap, again, you're still going to be insecure. You're still going to think, God, is my retirement fund going to grow? Is my house going to maintain its value? Or will I will I be able to stay healthy so I can keep working? I mean, so insecurity plagues us. And then I think at the upper levels, it's harder to have sympathy for people. But there's some, there does seem to be something in the system <laughs> that drives people to have this pathological need to have more. It's not just a few greedy folks. It's not just a few greedy bad apples. If we could just get rid of those folks everything would be cooperative and great. No, I mean, there's something in the system that that fuels this insecurity, that fuels this constant accumulation. I mean, that's the logic of capital. Um, and so I think it does afflict everybody. And I think the the positive side of that, which I'll end on in this, I'll end this rant on, is that I think that really does authentically mean that everyone has something to gain from a more secure order. And I think wealthier people might have a harder time seeing it. <laughs> but it's like, I think... If we could know that there wasn't as far to fall, then we could breathe a little bit. We could relax, right? And in the book, I make bigger cases when I talk about ecological security, especially, right? There are things to to, to be gained from redesigning our economy so that security is actually a central goal. But I don't think this system is really working for people. And, and that includes the people who seem to have it all. Do you feel like some of this, obviously the system feeds on this, but it also feeds into kind of, it seems like a natural desire for accumulation. And is, is that, like, how do we develop that sense of enoughness? Is that even possible? Like, is it something that's cultivated or is it something that's a part of just human nature accumulating more in this desire for accumulation? I mean, I think, yeah, sure, people like to have stuff, but I, I see it as very, what's the word, like enculturated? Is that a word? Am I making a word up? I mean, so for example, in this society, in, and I'm talking here in the United States and, and in Canada, if you want to have a chance at economic stability in old age, you have to buy property. You have to own a house. Because what, what does buying a house really mean for most people? It means renting from the bank. But what you get when you get a mortgage is 30 years at a fixed interest rate. This is in the United States. In Canada, it's different. But in the United States, for the most part, you get 30 years at a fixed interest rate, which means you know what your rent is, your rent to the bank for 30 years. And then at the end of that, if you manage to, to do it, it's yours. <laughs> and then nobody's going to raise your rent on you. I mean, but if you live in Vienna, in Austria, you don't have to dream of buying a house because there's social housing that is affordable that you can trust will be there for you and your family. You can trust your kids can probably move into it. This is because Vienna has a very unique and robust system of social housing, meaning that it's run on a nonprofit basis, sometimes controlled by the municipalities, sometimes by nonprofit entities. So I think you get a really great example there. I mean, people there are like, there's lots of things I could do with my, my life, but but you know, striving for five years for a down payment or 10 years or I mean, as, as housing gets further and further out of reach for most people for my whole life to get a down payment, it doesn't have to be at the top of their agenda. 
So without a doubt, I think what capitalism in its current formation does is prod something that's part of our nature. So in the book's first chapter, I distinguish between what I call existential insecurity. So we're all insecure. We're vulnerable. We die. We get sick. We can be wounded. We're dependent on others. And, and we're dependent also on material things, right? If I don't eat, I die. If I don't have shelter, right, I'm going to be exposed to the elements. So I need things to live as a, as a being. And then there's manufactured insecurity, which is this plaguing of our insecurities or prodding of them for profit. And so I think there's a, a human nature element in the sense that we're all vulnerable creatures who need other people and need things to exist. But that gets really exploited in the situation we're in now. So I think we'll always want stuff. I think we have to, to cultivate a sense of enoughness when it's appropriate. But it's a systemic problem. And I think systemic problems require systemic solutions. And part of it is that, yes, you have guaranteed rent if you buy a house. But you also, for many people, it's their retirement savings. Their homes become their retirement savings. And what we saw in 08 is how many people actually were devastated because they lost their retirement savings. I think that that's actually the heart of the matter in this country is the lack of stable retirement, the lack of a retirement guarantee, right? Because you're exactly right. Why do people, people do want that rent, whether, whether or not it's cheap, just rent they can count on to the bank, their mortgage payment, 30 years. But you're absolutely right. It's your nest egg for your golden years, right? I mean, it's it's hopefully the asset that you can cash in on. And that's because we don't have other systems of support that are adequate for people when they're old. And I see this every day at the Debt Collective where our, we've got a caucus of older debtors that's just growing and growing. And they're retiring with student debt. A lot of times, because they lost their jobs or something happened like, oh, wait, you just mentioned the financial crisis and they're told, well, go back to school. It's your fault. Go get retrained, right? Go learn to use computers. <laughs> and so they take on student debt. And then the problem is there's no jobs or that there's age discrimination in the workplace. So I dream of the first part of the 20th century. It was around the time of the Depression and there were these associations that just had millions of members of old folks saying, we need social security. We need something like that. Like this was before social security, right? We need to be able to have dignified old age. We shouldn't have to just work till we drop dead. And they made a lot of progress. That's why we have social security. But I feel like that that's a movement we really need in this world. Because if you, if you can know I'm not going to be homeless when I'm old, a lot of pressure would be off <laughs> in your in your life. So I kind of I feel like a lot of problems stem from that and just from the contempt that we treat, treat the elderly with. And and I think the other problem was we're in some ways we're all bought into the system, right? So it's really hard. I think one of our advisors, Jerry Davis, wrote about this that once we all have four hundred one k plans and we're all invested in seeing basically our savings go up because it's our retirement savings. So it's, it's okay. Do we want Enron to exist? Do we want to be investing in oil stocks? No, we don't. But we also don't want our retirement savings to be devastated. So we're kind of a conundrum. And that by itself limits the kind of transformative actions and what we're willing to do. Because in some ways we're all, or most people, have bought into the system in one way or another. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed Jerry's commentary when we were in our meetings as advisors. And I actually, it makes me think that I should send him a copy of the book because he's thought more specifically about the retirement example. But I, I think that's exactly right, um, that 
because there aren't public options, social security is so stingy. (laughs) In Canada, it's the same way. You can't actually live on it. That you have to, if you manage to get out of debt, have some savings, then it's going to be invested in things that you're not just, it's not just that you're anxiously watching it, it and praying that it doesn't collapse, but also that things that are actively undermining our security writ large, right? Undermining the health of the planet, undermining the health of other communities, right? Maybe you're invested in tech companies like Amazon that are trying to crush labor or Uber or so many teacher pensions are invested in all sorts of toxic assets. And I think that's why it's important to have a a break (laughs) and to say we need to actually have universally funded public pensions because this mechanism by which we are trying to achieve security, and this is something I talk a lot about in the book in other ways, but the the mechanisms on offer, the, the mechanisms by which we're told to achieve security actually actively undermine it. And they might work for us as individuals, though there's a lot of risk inherent in them, but they certainly don't work at a a planetary level. And so we need to name that and face the way that we're implicated in it. And that way say, like, we need to build an (laughs) off-ramp so that we can do something else that's more sustainable because security is something that we're all in need of and that we're all entitled to. And ultimately, my well-being shouldn't be at the expense of the, the wealth of the planet. But again, what I'm saying is that these things don't even enable our well-being. And I guess there was a moment in, at least in the U.S. history, right, FDR and after, when we instituted Social Security and kind of the, the conversation has really moved into providing more of the guarantees of various kinds. It wasn't perfect and didn't obviously excluded many people, particularly African-American, indigenous populations. But, you know, there was an attempt to kind of create that level of universality and access to what I call basic assets, right? And at that time also, and I think you mentioned in the book, the whole notion of the second Bill of Rights, which was all about guaranteeing childcare and retirement and all kinds of education, free education, public education, all of these things. And it never, we never got to that point. It's like we have a declaration of human rights, which is about freedom of speech and constitutional rights, but we don't have a bill of rights for economic rights, right? Yeah. I mean, so, so I want to bracket the rights thing first and just say one thing I'm, I'm with you on the need for not just universal income, but, but universal assets, right? To, because I think there's, there's all sorts of reasons for that, but I think it's important for a society to say, it's not just about giving you cash. It's actually saying, this is what we as a society need. We need healthcare. We need education. We need shelter. I think there's something very powerful in that. What did surprise me researching this book was how critical the language of insecurity and security was to Roosevelt's efforts during the New Deal. Because I think, and maybe this is just me projecting my Occupy inequality sensibility. I thought, oh yeah, inequality with Wall Street was out of control then. <laughs> but But really... They weren't talking about inequality as much as insecurity, the, the, the experience of people who were dealing with mass unemployment and bread lines. And so Roosevelt denounced insecurity as one of the most fearsome evils of our economic system. And security was the name of not just the social security program, but really the sort of rallying cry for all of the New Deal programs. And I think that's there's, there's maybe a lesson there in terms of actually speaking to people's experiences because people don't go. I mean, yeah, so I guess people can be like, I don't like inequality. I don't like that there are these billionaires who are doing so much harm. But I think people day to day are like, I don't want to be insecure, right? I'd like to have some security. I'd like to be able to 
feel a bit less anxious when I look forward. So I think it's just interesting to to fully take in how essential those frames were to the New Deal efforts, which, as you exactly said, were imperfect, but they were also really impactful. <laughs> and this country would be much worse if it if it hadn't happened. On the rights issue, as you said, I mean, Roosevelt proposed an economic bill of rights. And I think it was the year before he died. It would, be, would have been a second bill of rights and it included things like rights to adequate income, healthcare, education, shelter. And what, what FDR said when he was speaking to the public about this second bill of rights, he said, all of these rights together, all of these economic rights together spell security. And so I just want to flag that as this really expansive, multifaceted conception of what security is. It's not just one thing, right? <laughs> it's not just freedom. It's not just like bodily integrity, for example, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm secure because somebody's not attacking me. He's saying it's a whole web of social support so that you can live a full and, and safe life. And of course, that idea was anathema to Republicans and also to the Dixiecrats, right? Who were, because Roosevelt was quite explicit that it would have been for, for black and white Americans both, and they did not want to have that. But that idea of economic rights, there's hints of it in, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but we have not manifested those rights <laughs> in a meaningful way. And ultimately, that's because we need to keep building that grassroots power to do so. We wouldn't have had the New Deal. Yes, sure, Roosevelt was a critical figure, but so was this amazingly organized and militant labor movement and movement of the unemployed. And as I said, millions of elderly people <laughs> getting together and saying, hey, we're mad. We're not going to take it anymore. So we need those, those parts. And the elderly folks, for people who are curious, it was called the Townsend Plan Movement, which just was millions. Again, I think it was like 3 million folks were members, which is a huge number. And they just said senior citizens should get money <laughs> to, to live. And so that's the kind of base building and organization that's required to, to get policies passed, policies that are inevitably not going to be perfect, but can move us closer towards our long-term goal. It occurred to me, it was interesting. So you have a book on insecurity, the age of insecurity. Natalie Foster, who you probably know, she is the co-founder of the Economic Security Project and has been advocating universal basic income. She's writing a book called Guarantee, about basically mostly guaranteed income. And IFCF, we put out a manifesto of universal basic assets, and we're all kind of in the same territory saying there's got to be a new way of thinking about basically guaranteeing, moving some things from commodities into rights and guarantees and dealing with that levels of, in, of insecurity that we have. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, is it, are we at this moment... Have we normalized insecurity for so many people to such a degree that these conversations, they seem like so out of reach or out of range? We've done lots of ethnographic interviews and work with low-wage workers, and it's very rare that we ask them, like, what could be better? What could help you? These are people who are working maybe 80 hours a week just to make a living, and it's almost never that people say, well, we've got to change the system or we've got to understand this. It's all about, well, I need to learn to save more or I need to get the skill. It's all about me and self-improvement, which has been sold to so many people. So how do you change and denormalize some of these narratives and make the idea of 
we should all have security. We should all have access to a basic set of assets. How do you normalize it? And how far away are we from this? Yeah. Oh, my God. I just love that question so much. And I want to say that it's so true on Natalie's book, which I think I'm actually a character. I'm a character in, or I know I am. Yes. <laughs> Fighting for the guarantee. Because I think I think one thing we have to acknowledge is how threatening a guarantee is to the status quo. Right. And look how threatening the New Deal was. I mean, the, the New Deal was, I mean, it was fought in its crib. Right. 1947, they're rolling labor gains. They, you know, and you have businessmen declaring explicitly a war on the New Deal and the guarantees. And, and one thing I show in the age of insecurity is just how security for the masses is always being portrayed by a set group of elites as like a threat, right? Like if normal people are secure, they'll just get lazy, they won't work, society will crumble. So it might be mean, but we just have to, we, we have to just motivate people with the stick of insecurity. That's just how it's got to be, right? And it's for their own good. It's for social good. So I think one, one point we have to push on is, is pushing back on that. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's lots of evidence that that period in, in the United States when incomes were compressed, and obviously it was not an equal society, there was still Jim Crow, there were lots of problems. I mean, there hadn't even been second wave feminism yet. But, you know, it was an economically productive period. This idea that people just like lounge about and don't do anything when they have a modicum of security is, is, is totally bogus. So there's a lot of myth busting to do, which is why I, I wrote this book too. I mean, part of the thesis at the front is insecurity is not an individual phenomenon, right? So insecurity, it is an emotion, but it's not just in your head, right? It's personal and it's political. And part of its power, I think, is that it's so visceral, right? Like when I say insecurity, we all know what it means, which is like, we know it, it feels scary and it feels scary to feel like you might be laid off. It feels scary to feel like you might not succeed. It feels scary to think you might get sick or lose your healthcare or get sick and not have healthcare. So I think recognizing insecurity as something that we all experience and the way it's weaponized against us is, is part of the project that you're laying out. And so in the, in the book, I'm the sort of optimist in me is like, well, can we can we find solidarity and in insecurity? Like, hey, you 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 also need these basic things. You need these guarantees, these shelter, education, stability, and old age, an environment that isn't going haywire, air that you can actually breathe. So we all need these. And can there be a kind of solidarity and vulnerability, or what I call in the book an ethic of insecurity? But it's not enough to just have that ethic and be like, well, I'm vulnerable, you're vulnerable. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a better world? No, we have to organize and build, again, build that power. And that's how you, I think some people's minds change from a book or from a tweet or a meme or a TikTok or a movie or whatever. But organizing is the most powerful way to do it. We have to organize in order to change the balance of power in this society and to, to demand that these guarantees actually get implemented, they, they go from just being ideas in white papers or ideas that nerds like us discuss on Zoom, right? Like, wouldn't it be nice, the things that we're actually doing? Natalie's done a lot of great work with actual experiments in universal basic income and the economic security project. The Debt Collective is trying to show that debt cancellation is possible and, and to get the idea of education as a right out there. I mean, there's a million organizers and activists who are trying to, to move that needle. And when we do have examples from history too that we can point to and examples in other countries. But I think you're right that insecurity is really normalized and it's totally connected to the sort of American individualist mythos, which is, well, if you've got 
if you're not rich and you're insecure, it's your fault. So pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all that. And I think we just need to to chip away at that. And and a lot of people will take on a different story because it's a kind of lifeline. Like it's actually nice to be told it's not your fault <laughs> for once. <laughs> but you mentioned that you have to do a lot of myth busting. And I feel like part of what I've been doing for the last 10 years and you and others, it's like doing that myth busting. Like this is not about you. This is about these other forces. Or if you think this is a solution, that's not the solution. And so we are living on a lot of these zombie ideas, the ideas that being kind of refuted by evidence by refuse to die. And so much of our society is now based on these narratives and they are reinforced here in Silicon Valley the whole narrative about, well, insecurity also promotes innovation. Like people are scrambling and they're innovative because they have this insecurity or because they see somebody else succeeding. And other countries and other places have innovated and done it in a very different way without producing this, these waves of insecurity. So there's a lot of myth busting that needs to be done. But I see kind of in a perverse way, I see some hope in terms of what's happening for now in creating this solidarity. It, the writers and the actors now are on strike. Basically, these are professions that we think of as knowledge workers, higher paid, somewhat much more secure than your janitors or your hotel workers. And they're finding themselves in a very similar precarious situation. And that, I, I don't know, I hope that people are seeing these levels of solidarity, like you're actually fighting for the same things and you're experiencing the same things, whether you're, you have a college degree and you're highly educated or you don't have a college degree and you're in a low-wage occupation or what's considered low-wage occupation. We're even seeing doctors, so many doctors' practices are being acquired by hedge fund. I think something like 50% of doctors' practices are acquired and they're seeing how they're being treated like gig workers also and they're having to operate on the same basis so there is a kind of this level of solidarity that i feel like is beginning to emerge maybe we're at this early stage and in some ways it's similar to what was going on in the 40s and before the new deal era what, what do you think yeah, I mean, I, I, all of those examples that you just gave, I think, are, are really powerful. And it, it occurs to me that one of the things about, and it's, it's one of the pleasures of being American, right, is that it's always about how special and different we are and unique we are and how, and, and the thing about solidarity is that you don't have to erase your differences. You can have solidarity across difference, but you do have to find that commonality, right? Like, actually, I might be a doctor, <laughs> but my exploitation is related to, to the way the nurses are being treated or even the custodians, right? Or the screenwriters, like you have to have that imaginative facility and go, I see what's in common here, right? And, and I see that your fight is my fight. That doesn't mean I have to pretend that we're in the exact same boat, <laughs> but we're in the same sea and suffering from the same shifts in weather. And we can have a kind of common cause. And I think that is, I think that's sort of the, the, sort of encouraging thing at this moment has been the, the revival of the, the labor movement because history shows that a stronger labor movement coincides with a more robust democracy, more egalitarian social policies. I mean, they're, they're, they're just essential mediating institutions in our society. And part of what they mediate is that space between people. It's a, 
this is why the debt collective is modeled on a labor union. We call ourselves a debtors union because it's it's a space where people can come together and try to build those bonds to share their woes, but not have it just be a, a pity party. <laughs> You're like, okay, so yes, we're we're this is really freaking stressful. Like it, it, the debt is destroying your life. But how can we be stronger together? And and that just means you said something about busting these myths. I mean, that means you have to kind of give the same spiel over and over and over. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said the phrase, you're not in debt because you live beyond your means, but because you're denied the means to live. Like you got to say it again and again and again and again and again, because each time you're opening the door to someone who maybe hasn't heard that before, right? Who has only been told that it's their fault and only been told they're to blame. And so the thing is, we just... We need more. I mean, the the organizing. I just got, I'm I'm actually now finishing a book on solidarity, so this is really top of my mind. And I was just fact checking. So it's out in March, and I was just fact checking a, a story about a strike with a friend, and he said, "Well, the strike really did build solidarity, and we won some things, but it also caused a lot of sorrow." And that was a, an honest account because there's always disappointment. You rarely win everything you want to win. Often the boss or whatever the power structure is going to fight you really hard, even after that contract is signed or that policy is passed, it doesn't stop. And I think that's part of what being part of an organized movement can do too, is help you weather the disappointments and also see that the sorrow is shared with other people too. But it, it's just on my mind because we just had this exchange right before our, our conversation started. And it's, we, we do need to be real that it's a difficult process because you're opening yourself up to A, naming the insecurity of your position. I'm being exploited at work. I'm in debt. I'm, I'm being abused by my landlord or I'm subjected to racism. And then you join with others to organize against it. And then you're kind of being vulnerable because you're being hopeful <laughs> that things might change, right? And you're being like, I have to try. And that does mean that you'll experience all sorts of complicated things when, when, it's, when it's hard. I mean, there's incredible things. There's connection and camaraderie, but it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's, it's real. <laughs> it's real. And I think the other part of it is that insecurity is extremely time consuming, right? It takes time to just survive in a very insecure environment. To me, it's not surprising. Some of the largest Black Lives Matter protests happened during COVID when people basically had some form of universal basic income and there were a lot of support and people had time to engage in civic work. Right. The reason I think that we don't have more of that is because we just don't have time for that kind of organizing work, for civic work, for engagement. And so that's another piece of it that this security gives people opportunity and time for real other kind of work, which is civic work. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think democracy takes time. <laughs> and and elites have sometimes used that against, again, the rabble, right? Like, well, we, only the leisure class can really devote themselves to this important stuff of government. And it's like, well, no, well, if we gave everybody else a break once in a while, if we, instead of redo the math on eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what you will, and put some democracy time in there, some civic time in there, right? Then th I think things could work a lot better. But, you know, you're right that a system that generates insecurity is a time suck. I think it's Annie Lowry who has written some great pieces for The Atlantic on the sort of time tax of the current neoliberal, quote unquote, welfare state, right? Which is, there's just so much paperwork and bureaucracy for already poor, stressed people to jump through. 
Yes, it's expensive to be poor, and that expense is money and time. And so I think that's that's exactly right. And but that and that's part of the promise of security, right? If we offered people more economic security, more material security, then they would have more time to do other things. But that's also why it's a threat to the elites who don't really want people to be more democratically engaged. They wouldn't be gerrymandering, right, and removing polling stations on election day if they actually wanted civic engagement from uh, the little people. <laughs> Before we end, I, I really would like to talk about what's happening with debt and your efforts to eliminate debt, student debt, because it's been so confusing. There's been so much debate and legislation and then Supreme Court. Where are we with all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, that honestly, we're in a moment of backlash. And, and this is also part of what, what happens when you organize and begin to kind of shift that Overton window is that the right wing mobilizes against it. So after 10 years of effort, effort that began at Occupy Wall Street, so I was a kind of, I wasn't the most active participant, but I was part of Occupy, called by my friend David Graber, who was the esteemed anthropologist who probably some of your listeners know. He wrote a great book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years and the Dawn of Everything, which has been a crazy bestseller, <laughs> which sadly he didn't get to see. Yeah. So David was like, well, come to these planning meetings. We're planning an occupation of, of Wall Street. And I was like, oh my God, you're never going to occupy Wall Street, but I'll come on the first day. And we began a sort of offshoot focused on debt. Really, for me, what, what attracted me was this idea that we're in debt for what should be, in my opinion, public goods, these guarantee, call them guarantees, call them universal assets, right? And so you can really get people rethinking the nature of the economy by pointing out the fact that, hey, you have medical debt, guess what? People in Canada don't have that because they have universal health care, right? Like people in most of Europe don't have medical debt and <laughs> they have universal health care. So it's kind of a quick leap to, to thinking about the state and the way our economy is structured. And we started raising the demand for the cancellation of debts, but specifically focusing our organizing because we just felt like we had a strategy around student debt. And we had a, a protest in 2012 demanding the abolition of all student debt and free public college that was mocked in the press. And they just said, the government will never cancel student debt. We just kept organizing. We launched a series of student debt strikes with students who had been defrauded by predatory for-profit colleges in 2014 and 15 and began actually winning relief at first millions millions. And then the Trump years, we had to hold the line. Things weren't looking good. But then in 2022, in June, the Biden administration basically made an announcement and all of our demands were met seven years later. So all of the debts from this string of for-profit colleges were erased for hundreds of thousands of people. So we're getting billions of dollars of relief. And by that point, we had also pushed the Biden administration Luckily, our, our demands elevated by all sorts of contingencies, COVID playing a role because it caused student debt payments to be paused, Bernie playing a role because he elevated our message, Warren playing a role because she brought a kind of legal authority to some of our, the mechanisms we were talking about. But essentially, Biden reluctantly announced this proposal to actually cancel student debt. And if it had been implemented, it would have been one of the largest progressive wealth transfers in American history, $130 billion would have been an absolute lifeline for a huge number of people. For an estimated 40 million people, it would have completely wiped the debts away for 20 million borrowers, mostly the, the most low income and struggling. And so there were, I won't bore people with the details, but the Biden administration, despite our best efforts and multiple meetings, we said, you need to do this fast. There's a lot of risks. 
They did it really slow. They waited six weeks to put the most simple application online. They waited weeks to start approving applications that bought the right wing lots of time because they have lots of money and lots of lawyers. So there were like a dozen lawsuits, totally bogus. Most of them, most of them just thrown out of court. But two were teed up with sympathetic right wing judges, Trump judges, the kind of go to courts, because that's how the judicial system works, and sucked fast up the chain using a, an unusual procedural trick that basically meant they never went through. So two cases got rushed up to the Supreme Court. They never went through discovery. Nobody ever checked the claims. There was no evidence ever investigated. The claims were just taken at, at face value, which is crazy. When you think, when you think of courts, you think of looking at the evidence, right? But because of this procedure, there, there was none of that. And the case was decided on partisan lines. I and mean, in fact, in her dissent, Kagan accused the majority of violating the Constitution in striking down uh, the student loan debt relief plan. So Biden did announce a plan B. So in a sense, he kind of did what we wanted. He used our basic logic. He invokes the legal authority we've been asking him to use, but he's again moving too slowly. And so we're seeing a bit of a repeat of the problems with round A. And at this point, the right wing, and I'm talking about Bernie Marcus, who is the, the billionaire, very right wing founder of Home Depot. I'm talking about all sorts of mega right-wing billionaires hanging out with our justices like Thomas, right? Who a lot, there's many people can look online. There's stories about how he's been hobnobbing with people who are against relief. And so has his wife and Alito, sorry, Alito and, and was his wife. And so the right wing is really galvanized right now in trying to even roll back things like public service loan forgiveness. So it's a dangerous moment, a good moment for people to get involved because on the one hand, our movement has made tremendous progress. We've won billions of dollars in relief. And, and I, my feeling is that the genie of debt cancellation is not going to go back in the bottle, right? Like this is now on, on the table. We know it's possible, but the right wing is highly activated, even though it's actually popular with a lot of Republicans, like the base. But the big money donors and their allies on the Supreme Court are dead set against giving people that little bit of breathing room, right? So now the game is to push him to move faster, to be bolder, and to not not let them set the terms because they're not actually the aristocracy of this country, right? And so let's be bold and force them to to reimpose debts on, on 40 million people, which is a tricky proposition, instead of moving slowly and kind of giving, giving away the power we have. So we're still organizing. We're still pressuring. There's other tricks up our sleeve, but the right's highly, highly, highly organized and very, 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 very well funded, <laughs> which debtors are not by definition. Which is always kind of interesting to me how it's almost like in the U.S., maybe because we haven't had strikes, like the kind of strikes people had in the 20s and 30s, labor strikes, it's like not part of the repertoire anymore. People don't know how to do it. Like the the Hollywood strikes are kind of a new phenomenon. And hopefully it's like, it takes a minute to go on strike in France or in Germany. <laughs> Most places in Europe, right? doesn't take anything. It's almost inconceivable to be doing something like that, particularly like general strikes or even large scale. And it's because there's no organization, right? Right. We're not members just automatically of these mediating institutions. If you're a student in Quebec and you're in CIGEP, which is kind of the high school, right? You're in a student union and you're in a student union in college. 
And that student union is highly democratic. So you learn how to do democracy as a kid, basically. We don't have comparable formations in the U.S., right? Most workplaces are actively disorganized because the laws are so hostile to, to unions. I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting about a debt strike, because you're, you, you're not withholding your labor, you're withholding your payment, is that actually millions of people are on kind of de facto debt strikes. They're just not organized. So a big thing with the debt collective is to try to, we're trying to mobilize all those people who are, are not paying, in sh but they're shamed about it, right? They're quip, they're like hiding in the <laughs> shadows and to say, come out, you have nothing to lose. Like come out and, and be and build power together. And that's how we're going to show these people that they can't impose a debt that the federal government said was going to be canceled. Like that's unacceptable. But first you have to, you have to realize that you're not alone and join with others. Literally my conversation before this conversation was about cultures of democracy and thinking about, we don't, we're very worried about our democracy. There are lots of conversations about it. Foundations are putting in grants for that. But one thing that we haven't really thought about carefully is that cultures are not just inherited, cultures are lived. And if you think about our institutional sort of terrain, where do you practice democracy? Our schools are not democratic. Our businesses are not democratic. A lot of things that we live in are not democratic. So where do you get that? What you said about the student unions, and if you're a student, you belong to a union. You, we don't have strong labor unions. There's a lot of attention but to that. And we're reading about these strikes, but the reality is that membership in unions has not been increasing, still continues to decline. So we don't have these institutions that produce these cultures where it becomes sort of part of being. We can't think otherwise. I totally agree. And I think that's part of why, even though I, I prefer writing, I mean, I'd rather just be a writer, but part of why I've built the Debt Collective with my, my friends into an organization that now has thousands and thousands of members is that I just think our society really needs these schools for a democracy, right? We need to build those. And this is where I have to plug my, my book and its companion film. I made a film that came out in 2019 called What is Democracy? And I wrote a book called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, that the opening section deals with exactly this. It's like, I went around and I just asked people on the street, what's democracy? And some people couldn't um, define it. In fact, there's a scene in, a film, in the film where a young woman is on a bench with her friends. And I'm like, what is democracy? And she's not being ironic. <laughs> but she says, isn't that where they tell you what to do? In my book, you know, what I said, reflecting on that scene is, you can't blame people for not knowing what democracy is when they don't live in a society that is democratic, right? Yeah, I just did a podcast with somebody who's been very involved in labor schools, which were very, they, there were lots of them in, in this country, but they've all disappeared. One of them was here in, in California and talks exactly about that, that those labor schools were actually also democracy schools and a lot of times they were connected to labor unions. But what, in concluding, what do you, what do you feel like, I, each one of us has a different role to play in changing and demystifying and busting the myths and organizing. What do you see as your role and what do you think is really important for you to be working on? I think I'm going to, to try to write a book about debt next. And I think actually this moment when on the one hand we've made enormous progress, but we've also inspired this astonishing pushback. It's really important to actually 
kind of give a meta view and, and name the stakes. I mean, why is student debt cancellation so threatening? <laughs> and they actually say, they, they actually spell it out in the lawsuits that were filed. I mean, one just said, oh, well, if there's a debt cancellation, how will we retain our employees who are enrolled in this broken public service loan forgiveness thing, right? This was a libertarian think tank saying, well, hold on, our employees will be less beholden to us. There was another lawsuit that said, well, hold on, this is racist because it slightly benefits black people, right? So in other words, there was the white supremacist lawsuit against it. There were all of these Republican Congress people saying, oh, we can't cancel student debt because how will we recruit for the military, right? Okay, so just admitting that student debt is a tool of coercion. And so I think at this moment of, of pushback, it's actually really important to make a big case of the public that says, this is actually really critical. This is not just about money. This is actually about power, power of your life. This is actually about freedom and your lack of freedom, right? Your lack of freedom to participate in democracy. So I do think I want to do that. Is that a companion book to David Graeber's Death yeah, the first well, David's really ends in the modern age. So I think there's a lot that I could write that, that's not in there that would be complimentary and a bit more journalistic with characters. And then there's a, a chapter of the Age of Insecurity that's about, beyond, it's called Beyond Human Security, that's about the more than human world. And so I'm going to, that's something I'm very interested in. And, and it's like my, <laughs> not my main project or what I'm known for, but writing about our relationship with animals and the environment. So I'm going to write a book of formerly unusual essays with my sister, who's a uh, professor at Berkeley now in the environmental studies about animals and the environment, maybe solidarity with the more than human world. So we've done a little bit of that, but you know, yeah, something, something a little bit stranger, <laughs> less straightforward. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for participating in our work and equitable enterprise and being such a just great thinker, organizer, and provocateur. Oh, thank Well, I was really, really stimulated by those conversations. And I, I think I even mentioned, I was like, I think this is feeding into this thought work I'm doing on security and security. And it definitely did. So I just want to give thanks for inviting me into those spaces and, and for following along through the trials and tribulations of, of debt abolition. But I really do. I think 10 years isn't very long for movement. And so we've won a lot and it's important for us to keep the historical perspective because when we just started out, our ambition was, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we could erase a million dollars of debt? <laughs> and so now we've erased tens of billions and I'm just sulking because we haven't erased it all. So it's, it's good to kind of keep things in, in perspective as you, as you go forward. And sometimes it's a sign that you're on the right path if you're pissing off people who are as, as terrible as the ultra-conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.